The scripture today from the Old Testament is Isaiah 57, verses 14 through 19. It's on page 784 in your pew Bibles. But first, pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Thank you that we have your word and that it is powerful. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. As we come before you to read your word, help us to take it to heart that we might be conformed to your image. Open our eyes, ears, and hearts that through your word our lives may be changed. For indeed, we want more than information. We want transformation. In your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 57, 14 through 19. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Thank you. Well, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. You know, the uh, I've always said that the only problem with exercise is that it's awful. <laughs> and when I see people running outside, especially in the summer, I can only think, why? All of the air conditioning is in here, inside, where I'm not running. And uh, I've come to appreciate that some people actually enjoy exercise and you know, I hear people saying there are all kinds of health benefits to it. Um, that's debatable. But uh, I've come to appreciate that. But I didn't always appreciate that. Uh, but I still tried exercising every now and then. And I would go to the gym and I would get there. And uh, very quickly, I would start to become intimidated. I'd look around and... Uh, you know, try and find something that I could feel comfortable on. I'd think, okay, I'll go over to these weights and uh, I'll lift today and then I'll, I'll get big, um, kind of all of a sudden. <clears throat> and then I'd go over there and I'd find out that some people do that like every day. And they're already big. They don't have to go lift once to get big. And 
so what I would start to do is to make myself feel better in my mind, I'd start to work on just kind of whittling them down however I could. Never out loud because they were big. But in my mind, I would start to think things like, well, they just have too much time on their hands. Well, I can't believe they spend so much money on protein shakes and all these kinds of doodads. And, well, I can't believe, you know, I can't believe they spend all this time at the gym. I like to stay home with my family. I'm a family man. I'm not a gym man. I'm a family man. And I, you know, I, I don't spend all that money on protein shakes. I, I like to spend my money on real shakes. You know, and I, I would start to whittle them down. And I would start to find a way that I could make sure that by the time I left the gym, even though I hadn't done any exercise, I could still feel better than them. Well, it's easy. It's easy to start thinking that we're better than others. And it's easy to start doing the same thing that I would do at the gym. It's easy to start doing that in other places too. It's a problem that all of us think. And it's that problem of thinking that because of something that I've done, something I wear, something I know, some, uh, one of these things, or sometimes even something I haven't done, I haven't worked out, I don't spend my money on these things, we can start using these things to make ourselves think that we're better or worse than anyone without those things. And it's exhausting. Always trying to prove we're the best, always trying to establish our place because of our skills, our knowledge, resources, things we've done. We're constantly making and receiving evaluations. In fact, the problem is so pervasive, you can't even eat something anymore without facing this problem. And if you think I'm wrong, just tell someone that you like McDonald's and you can see how they react. And this problem doesn't just stay in our daily life either. It affects us as members of the church, locally and worldwide. We compare ourselves against others over things like which sermon we liked or didn't like, who dresses the best, who has the best personality, who's the smartest, who tells the funniest jokes. That's Orlando, by the way. Which style of worship we like, which cup of coffee we'd rather drink. We can see differences every week that if we let them will divide us and they'll reach into our hearts and they'll tell us I'm better than you the good news is that we're not alone we're not the first ones to have this problem the church in Ephesus had a similar problem and we're going to read about it and God's solution in Ephesians 2 11 through 22 but first let's pray Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone in our sin. You are such a holy God, and yet you have provided us with the means toward holiness and your spirit working in us every day. Work in our hearts as we hear your word. Amen. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were near, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the first things that you can see as we're reading this passage is that Paul is addressing his readers in two different groups. And he's addressing them in a way that highlights their problem. He says that there are Jews and there are Gentiles. And he's highlighting this problem of this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's doing this, as Tim Keller says, he's doing this as a case study. And he's doing this as one example of how to deal with this type of problem that they face. Uh, These two different people groups had different ways of life. They ate different kinds of foods. How many of you have ever been, been to the store and seen something marked as kosher? They had two different kinds of foods. Well, a lot of different kinds of foods, but the Jews ate something different. They wore different clothes. They had different upbringings. For the longest time, they had worshipped in different ways. And the Jewish people had received God's law. They'd enjoyed a special relationship with God for thousands of years. Their role in God's world was to be like priests to these other nations, to show the other nations what a relationship with God could look like and to draw them into relationship with God. But the Gentiles hadn't received God's law. They weren't in that relationship unless they responded to God's call to them through the Jewish people. So when Paul's talking about the Gentiles and he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So here Paul is rightly describing their relationship with God before Christ. That's why he uses words saying they were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope, without God, far off. Before Christ came, that's typically how it was for Gentiles. And that's why Israel needed to act as priests to draw them into relationship with God. But the human heart has a tendency to take whatever it can and to use it to make, uh, to make ourselves feel better than others. And so some of the Jews decided to take God's law, and they began to twist them. And instead of them being a light to draw the Gentiles into relationship with God, they started to use God's law as a way to say, we're better than you. And they began to build up this wall of hostility. Instead of the law pointing to everyone's need for a Savior, they used it to make themselves feel better than the Gentiles. And in doing that, they created hostility. 
And it plagued the church so that even Jesus' disciples had a difficult time with it. Uh, You can read in the book of Acts and you can see when God is sending Peter to the Gentiles, he doesn't want to go. And he keeps saying, no, they're they're unclean. I'm not going to do that. I can't go to them. They're unclean. I'm better than them. And then finally, God convinces Peter that he does need to go. And he goes, but he goes reluctantly. You can also see in other places in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit began to fall on the Gentiles as well, some of the Jewish believers were surprised. And they thought, how on earth could God be blessing the Gentiles as well? We're better than them. Well, it wasn't only some of the Jewish people who were doing that, though. Because Gentile nations did it as well. And you can look all throughout history and see this. All throughout ancient history, nations have thought of themselves better than others because something they had that someone didn't. Greeks had the best philosophers. Romans had a huge nation. Innovations like their roads and their aqueducts. Uh, The Germans had the strongest warriors. You know, the list can go on and on and on. Culture after culture, taking something about themselves and using it to make sure everyone else knew that they were the best and no one else was. And what happened in Ephesus, in this town, where you have people from all these different walks of life and you bring them into the church together, is they brought those ideas with them. So some of those from Jewish backgrounds began to feel that they were better. And some of those from Gentile backgrounds began to feel that they were better. And it began to create hostility that if God let it go, it would tear at the foundation of the church. But Paul knew something that the Ephesians didn't seem to know. And it's a lesson similar to one that a a man named Haru Onoda had to learn. Haru Onoda was 22 years old when he received his orders. Go into the Philippines, fight against the enemy, do not surrender, do not take your own life. So Onada and his troops did just as they were ordered. They went to the Philippines, they fought, and for 30 years they fought, engaging in guerrilla warfare against the enemy. And for 30 years of fighting, they didn't know that World War II was over. Pamphlets, recordings from family members, everything people could think of to persuade them that the war was over didn't work. Until finally, 30 years later, at the age of 52, Onada finally left the jungle and surrendered. Paul, as he writes the Ephesians, is telling them that the war they are fighting among each other is over. Look with me again at verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The word that Paul uses for hostility here is the same word used to describe enemies. 
people who are at odds with each other. In other words, Paul's saying, you people are treating each other like your enemies, but the thing that makes you enemies is gone. Christ destroyed it. And the reality is, as we remember the history between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the Jews and everyone else, we can see that there really had been a wall separating them. And in the temple where the Jews worshipped, it was a literal physical wall where the Gentiles couldn't go past. But Christ broke it down. And the problem wasn't all of the differences that they had. The problem was that they were using those to prove who was better, and that's what was making them enemies. But Jesus broke down the hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he broke down the hostility among all other races, nationalities, people from every different walk of life. Paul acknowledges the difference exists, and he recognizes that at one point there was this hostility. It really was there, but he says that it met its end. And how? Well, I mentioned that he talks about the hostility coming from one group of people thinking that they're better than the other. And that's why Paul points to the cross. In verse 16, he says that Jesus reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Why does it matter that he points to the cross? Well, you remember that little word at the beginning of this passage, therefore, remember that at one time. He says therefore because of what happens just a little bit earlier in chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. None of us, none of us have a reason to boast. That's why he points to the cross. None of us have a reason to boast. It doesn't matter who we are, what gifts we have, because at the foot of the cross, we're all sinners saved by grace. And the result is that we're one. Jesus is our peace, and he has made us one. He broke down the wall of hostility, And he took away any reason that we might have to try and compare each other and think we're better than others because we brought nothing. We were reconciled to God and each other. And on the cross, Jesus signed the peace treaty and finished the war that we had been fighting. And so now what Paul is saying to the Ephesians and the same thing he's saying to us is if we keep fighting this war, we're fighting a war that was over a long time ago. And so when we're tempted to fight, he wants them to remember to put down their weapons and recognize we're no longer on opposite sides of this conflict. We're one people now, bonded by something stronger than any hobby, than any idea or nationality or any club or group. We're one people bonded together by the blood of Christ. And so it doesn't matter who's stronger, smarter, richer, poorer, faster, braver, whatever it is that we might use to make ourselves feel better than each other. Just like I want to use my lack of discipline, my lack of wanting to do hard things to make myself feel better than people who are disciplined and enjoy working out and improving themselves 
It doesn't matter. I can let it go. And we can all let it go. We can stop constantly evaluating. We can stop comparing ourselves against each other, trying to decide who's the best. We can stop believing that we're better than everyone else or that everyone else is better than us because we all came to Christ with nothing. Look at the words that he uses to describe us apart from Christ. Separate, alienated, strangers, having no hope and without God, far off, but in Christ, we're brought near. We are one. The wall of hostility is broken. He made peace. We are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's household, all of us. We are being joined together, growing into a holy temple for the Lord. And so in Christ, the hostility, the judgment, the division that comes from being different than each other and trying to evaluate those differences as a way of establishing our position is gone. It doesn't mean we don't have differences. It doesn't mean we ignore sin, but it means that we work through it for the sake of God's kingdom and for the sake of one another. And it doesn't mean that everyone here has to be your closest friend. There isn't time for that until heaven. But it does mean that in the church and among God's people, we shouldn't have any enemies. The war is over. And in Christ, we're one people. And so the result is this. You're not my enemy. And you are 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 not my enemy. And none of you are enemies with each other. The war is over. We don't have to fight anymore. But there's even more to it than that. Because it's not enough to just stop fighting. And as we look at verses 21 through 22, we can see the trajectory for the church now that the war is over. In 21 and 22, it talks about the household of God built with Christ being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is making us into a dwelling place for God. And so we need to ask also, what does it look like for us to set aside our weapons and instead cooperate with the Spirit and what He's doing among us? Uh, in St. Louis, there's a school, and it's called the Freedom School. And it's a school designed to see this purpose happen. It's designed to break down economic and cultural barriers that would keep some of the kids in St. Louis from getting an education. And the principal of Freedom School started asking around to see how they're doing. And this is what he wrote. I asked one of our parents from Burma if she felt comfortable around students and parents from other nationalities and races. She said she was afraid of African Americans because they steal from us. Our school van driver, an African American, heard this and decided to help change this perception. He actively befriended each parent. In less than a year, they were teaching him Burmese and giving him Burmese food. Our Burmese students now run to him like an uncle, not as an enemy. 
So if you want to know what it looks like now to begin living out this peace in Christ and to be moving on the trajectory that God has for the church, it looks like an African-American bus driver befriending Burmese parents so that they don't have to be afraid anymore of every African-American man they meet. It looks like Opportunity School open in our building. It looks like reaching out to the refugees and immigrants in our town. And it looks like working together with three other churches from three different denominations to make an impact in our city. Now, for some of us, responding to God's call means doing hard things. It means having some hard conversations. It means recognizing that what's in our hearts isn't always God's best. For some of us, it means getting down on our knees and praying, God, who do I consider my enemy who's actually my brother or my sister? Who would I hate to see walk through those doors right now? And for all of us, it means that acknowledging before God and each other, we're all on equal footing. And acknowledging that in Christ, we all belong no matter our color, age, ability, wealth, education, appearance. Our differences don't have to divide us anymore because the war is over and in Christ we're one. And do you know what will happen when we recognize and begin living out the end of hostility? That's when people will look at the church and they'll say, God lives there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in Christ the war is over. Thank you that in Christ we are one, that you fulfilled the words you spoke so many years ago for peace, that you have brought peace and that you have joined us to your people and that you are building us together into a dwelling place for yourself. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts this morning and each day throughout our lives and that you would help us to cooperate with what you're doing by your spirit. We pray all of these things for Christ's sake. Amen.